Good morning, everybody. It's great to be with you. I'm normally down at Onslow Square, the 10.30 and the 4.30. So if you ever want to come and visit us down at Onslow Square, we'd love to have you down there. As Archie mentioned, Liz and I and our kids moved back to London just after Focus, our church week away in August. And we love being back in London. We absolutely love this city. I actually moved to London about 18 years ago after I finished university. I know, you probably can't believe I'm that old. I can understand. Um, But about 18 years ago, I moved down to London for a job after university. And I'd landed this dream job at the BBC that I was really excited about. I found a flat to live in in Wimbledon with some friends of friends. And I didn't grow up going to church. I'd never been to church, I think, perhaps apart from uh, for a wedding or something like that. And what I noticed when I moved to London is that I was constantly surrounded by people. The streets were full of people. The shops were always open. You have to wedge yourself onto the tube with thousands of other people every morning. And although I was surrounded by people... I found that I was really missing the community that I had at university. I felt more disconnected. And perhaps that was accentuated because there were so many people around me in London. I felt like people didn't really know me. And although I was living this ideal life that all of my education had been building up to, this great job and this flat, what I actually ended up doing was cycling to work in the morning, getting to my desk, doing a day of work, cycling home, making pesto pasta because it's the only thing I could afford, and then watching a bit of TV and going back to bed. And I thought, is this all that it is after everything I've studied for? This is it. Surely there must be more to life than this. But I certainly didn't think that the church had any answers or any solutions for me. I didn't expect that I would go to church and explore a relationship with Jesus to try and find my purpose and my meaning. But one of the housemates that I moved in with in London just happened to be a Christian. And there was something different about the way that he lived his life. He was confident yet humble. He had this peace about him. And it was actually only after I'd normally come back from the pub having had a couple of drinks, I'd sort of ask him about his faith. I'd say, oh, you know, how come you're confident and you, you seem to have this peace even though your life on paper looks like mine? And he'd always reply and say, well, it's Jesus, mate. And I'd say, well, that's ridiculous. Don't be absolutely ridiculous answer to a question. But after a while, he, of me asking him questions, he asked me if I'd come to Alpha. And I resisted for a few months. But in the end, in September 2007, I turned up to the doors here for the first night of Alpha, which if you've never done Alpha, it's an opportunity to explore the Christian faith with a small group of people. And I expected to walk in to the doors and find a group of elderly people, maybe four or five of them, and sit with them. I think there were about 1,500 people and the average age was about 25. I was like, oh, okay. Uh, So I came in and started doing Alpha week by week. And in the middle of Alpha, there's a weekend away, which is a couple of nights on the South Coast where you look at the person of the Holy Spirit. And there are sessions like, who is the Holy Spirit? What does the Holy Spirit do? And on the Saturday evening, there was a talk titled, how can I be filled with the Holy Spirit? And at the end of that talk, we were invited to stand and to put our hands out in front of us if we wanted to receive the Holy Spirit. And I can remember standing on that weekend away, gripping the chair in front of me, thinking, I'm not putting my hands out in front of me. Absolutely not. There's no way you're getting me to do that. And I left the room 
and nothing had happened. I hadn't had an encounter with Jesus. I didn't feel any different. And possibly I left the room feeling a bit despondent that nothing had happened. And so I came to the conclusion, well, maybe God isn't real. And all these weeks on Alpha that I've been doing has been a total waste of time. But I couldn't reconcile that because all these people that I had met at church seemed to really know God for themselves. And this housemate that I had seemed to really know Jesus and it made a difference in his life. So I came to the conclusion that God must be real. He just doesn't want to know me. There must be something fundamentally true about me or my life that makes him not want to know me. So I went back to this room that I was staying in and I lay down on the bed and I began to cry. And I think it's because I thought, hey, I'd hoped that this was going to solve some of the things I'm facing in my life. And for the first moment, I prayed out loud. Or I don't know, I call it prayer. I just went, Lord, I think you're real. So why don't you show up? I'm making all the effort here. Like, where are you? And I got this sense that I should turn over in my bed and I rolled over and looked up at this grubby little ceiling. And as I did that, I was filled with an overwhelming sense of love, of peace. And it's quite difficult still to describe exactly what that was like. But in that moment, I knew that God was real and that he loved me and that he was there with me. And my life was totally transformed from that moment onwards. In fact, I went back to dinner with this small group of people who were on Alpha. And I'd been so difficult in the Alpha group. I'd been so argumentative that I went back and sat down and they were like nervous to ask how I was. Uh, Are you okay? I was like, actually, yeah, you know what? I think there's something to this. What has happened to you? Uh, I was totally transformed. A year later, I started working at HTB and felt called to ordination. And as Archie said, Liz, my wife, and I moved down to Brighton to help them with the church plant and then moved to Portsmouth. And when we were asked if we might come back to London, we were absolutely thrilled. It feels like coming home. I sort of see that spot where I sat in my Alpha group and Liz and I got married here on these steps and I got baptised in this pool that's under the stage just there. And so it's such a privilege to be back here with you all. Today I'm going to continue, as Archie mentioned, a series that we started last week looking at the book of Corinthians. And last week, Catherine, our associate vicar, preached on 1 Corinthians 13 verses 1 to 3. And she talked about how we're called to be a church that is known for its love. And today I'm going to continue looking at the next few verses. 1 Corinthians 13 verses 4 to 7. And they say this. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonour others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. The question that the author of these words, Paul, the Apostle Paul, was asking is, what does love look like? What is love supposed to look like? And the church in Corinth wasn't characterised by love. They'd come to know Jesus. They'd been filled with the Holy Spirit. But their behaviour and their character, the way they treated one another and the way that they were known in the city of Corinth definitely wasn't characterised by love. And so Paul writes to them to say, you should love one another. But he doesn't want them to 
get it wrong. He, he doesn't want to write to them and say, you should love one another and them all guess what that is supposed to look like. So he's at pains to describe exactly what that love is meant to look like. He starts with two things that love is, then eight things that love is not, followed by four things that love does. And in this series that we're doing, we're looking at how HDB can be a church that loves London, a letter to London. And there are things that Paul was saying to that church in Corinth that I think are relevant for me and for you today. So I want to look, what does love look like? Three things. Firstly, love is countercultural. Love is countercultural. I absolutely love being back in London. I really love the hustle and the bustle. You know, some people really enjoy elbowing people that other way to get on the tube. I'm sort of like that guy. I really love it. I love clocking a line bike and think I'm going to be first to get that line bike before somebody else scans it so I can unlock it. I've started a, um, a Pret coffee subscription. Has anybody else got a Pret coffee subscription? Yes. I'm saving thousands of pounds a month. Five coffees a day for £25 a month. I'm literally, I, I can't believe it. There's a Pret every 10 steps. It's just the best thing I've ever known. And every day I go to Pret. And I, order, I, I love it because not everybody knows the system in Pret. You queue up, you order your drink, you step to one side, you wait till they call cappuccino, and then you take your drink. And every morning, there's somebody who's ordered a cappuccino, and the brisk is going, cappuccino, cappuccino, and we're all eyeballing the person with their headphones in, looking at their phone, going, that was you. You ordered the cappuccino. Get it. You're slowing us all down. Really enjoy being a bit frustrated with everybody about it. It feels in London like everyone's got somewhere to go. They're on a mission, they're busy, they know exactly what they're doing. I'm in my lane and I'm going to get there faster than you. And I think that about that group of people at Pret in the morning, they're all, you know, they look like they've got it all together. And then every now and again, I overhear a conversation or I look at somebody a bit more closely and I realise just beneath the surface, they're struggling with anxiety and loneliness feeling disconnected. Perhaps they're worrying about debt or just about holding a relationship together. So often I think we all think that everybody else is sorted and we're the only ones who haven't got it all together. And it's true for so many of us in the church as well. You might be here this morning thinking, I put on a pretty good show as I walk through those doors, but actually things are falling apart a little bit for me. And in London, it's more easy to feel disconnected because we're walking alongside nine million other people without them ever truly knowing us or loving us. I love London, but it's not a city characterised by love. Last year in this capital, 30 young men and boys were murdered. Knife crime tearing families apart. It feels as though... We've lost another prime minister and the government doesn't have the answers to the questions that we're facing right now. The press are ready to pull anybody apart who tries to come up with a solution. People are fearful going into this winter about how they're going to heat their homes and put food on the table. In a city that isn't characterised by love, when we do see love, it really cuts through and is noticeable. I love this video of my friend Isaac's son. I think we've got a little clip of it here. Hi. <laughs> Say hello. Hi, guys. <laughs> Say yo. Yo. Yo, we're getting the back. 
I think 20 million people have seen that video on TikTok. I think the reason people love it so much is because Ezra's flipping cute. But also, it's so countercultural to reach out to somebody and interrupt their moment as they're walking along the street and just say, hey, yo. <laughs> These moments stick out to us. Last week, I was walking down Exhibition Road. It was raining, and this lady slipped off her bike and sort of skidded along a bit. And three people immediately straight to her and they picked up her bike and they helped her with her bag and they moved her to one side of the road and checked that she was okay. And it's obviously what we would all do, but it felt so countercultural because it's so, these moments of a kindness, of an interaction with someone are so rare. It feels unusual when we see this kind of love. It's like walking in the opposite spirit to the culture of the city around us. And that's what Paul is saying. As he writes to this church in Corinth, he's saying Corinth may be characterized by backbiting and inappropriate behavior, by scandal and unkindness, but the church is designed to walk in the opposite spirit, to be noticeably patient and kind and gentle. Because this love that is described in these verses is so countercultural. And this is the vision for us as a church at HDB, that in all the noise and in all the chaos, we would live countercultural lives of love. Every time a group of you go to Wormwood Scrubs to visit prisoners there, you're making love the primary culture. On Friday mornings, when a group of you sit with women who need a bit of extra TLC to tell them that they are worthy, you're making love the primary culture when you pick up someone's bike after they've fallen down, when you ask your colleague how they're really doing, when you learn the name of your prep barista, when you cry with your friend whose relationship has broken down, when you speak positively about the politician that you disagree with, you're making love the primary culture. The call on us at this time is to make the counterculture the primary culture. That's how we love London. So what does love look like? Love is countercultural. And secondly, love is a lifestyle. I mentioned that before moving back to HCB, Liz and I led a church in Portsmouth for six years, and we loved leading that church. We saw God do amazing things. But every now and again on a Sunday, somebody would come up to me with a helpful suggestion, which I was thrilled about, as you can imagine. And they'd say, hey, it was called Harbour Church, the church. And they said, they say, hey, I just thought you know, Harbour is not really a kind enough church or Harbour isn't a friendly enough church. You know, Harbour really doesn't teach the Bible well enough. And they probably clocked that I looked a little bit offended. And they'd say, no, no, don't take it personally. It's not, nothing personal. And after a while, I was thinking, you know, I've got to grow a thicker skin. I need to be um, able to take helpful feedback and criticism. But then I realised it is personal because it's just me. Harbour Church is just, you're just talking about me. There's no other organisation or, you know, faceless corporation that is this church. It's just me. And that's true not only for a church leader, but it's true for me and for you as well. When somebody speaks about our church, when somebody speaks about HTB, they're just talking about me and you. There's not a charity or an entity. It's just a group of people that make up something larger than themselves. Only me and you can make HDB the kind of church that is known for its love. 
And when Paul is writing to this church in Corinth saying, love is patient, love is kind, describing what that love should look like, he's talking to the me's and the you's of Corinth, saying this is how your life should be characterised. You know, you can change the word love in that verse for the word I. Probably one of the most challenging things you can do. I am patient. I am kind. I keep no record of wrongs. I'm not easily angered. The trouble is, as much as I would like that to be a description of how I live my life, it's difficult to live up to that standard. I don't wake up feeling slow to anger or feeling full of patience or ready to love this city. I get woken up at 6.15 by a six-year-old bouncing on my head, demanding a cup of milk that is served exactly at 41 degrees. And if it's not perfect, she's going to scratch my eyes right out. It's a dangerous moment in our house, 6.15 to 6.30. And so I don't feel like I'm ready to go out and love everyone and feel like I'm going to be patient. I'm keeping a record of everyone's wrongs in my book. So how can we live like this, if this is the calling on us as a church to live counterculturally, if it's just me and you, how do we do that? Well, love is countercultural, love is a lifestyle, and thirdly, and most importantly, love is a person. Liz and I have been married for about 13 years now. And when we first got married, I thought that when we got to bed, um, we'd sort of have like a conversation for about 45 minutes as I processed my day, you know, pillow talk. I'd sort of lie down and like tell her about my day and she would really love that. We'd have a hug. And, you know, that's what love looks like in a marriage. Liz made it abundantly clear within the first sort of two days of our marriage that it is not what love looks like to her. She puts her head on the pillow, lights off, and she's fast asleep. Don't disturb me. In fact, in fact, she's downloaded a white noise app on her phone and she plays white noise now. So that when I, get, I think she, just to drown out the noise of me wittering onto her, shut up, trying to go to sleep. What I did realise after about 11 years was that if I put on a pair of yellow marigolds and clean all the toilets before she gets home from work, she feels very loved. Cleaning toilets does not make me feel loved. I need a hug and to be told I'm looking like a 10 out of 10. <laughs> the way that we love one another is unique to that person. It, the problem is figuring out what love looks like to the other person. Everybody loves differently and there's no yardstick for what love objectively looks like. When you remove human love from divine love, you get chaos. If you don't have one way to define what love is, then you just chase this feeling or this emotion of feeling loved without ever really knowing what love looks like. But there is only one true definition of love, and it is Jesus. It's not an emotion, it's not a feeling. It can only be defined by a person, Jesus Jesus, who is love, not just loving, but he is love. And an encounter with Jesus is an encounter with love. Like on that bed 15 years ago when I was on the Alpha Weekend Away, when I met with Jesus, I experienced love. I felt what it was to be truly loved. And if I'm really honest with you, a couple of weeks ago I was feeling pretty overwhelmed and maybe a bit despondent. I, moving back to a new city is tough. You leave friends behind. Our kids are in new schools and complicated friendships. And 
I felt excited about this vision to play my part in helping London to feel loved, but I was thinking I don't even have enough love to give my family, let alone sort of play my part in transforming a city by helping them all to know that they're loved. I probably didn't feel super close to God in my relationship with him. I thought, how am I going to make a difference to these nine million people? And then a couple of weeks ago, we had a team prayer meeting and we were singing All Hail King Jesus. We sang it just now. It's one of my favourite worship songs. But as we were singing All Hail King Jesus, I had this picture really vividly pop into my mind. It was a picture of Jesus after he was raised from the dead and ascended back to heaven. There's this picture of him in this room with a throne where the father was sat on the throne. And as he walked from this end of the room to the other, there were legions of angels singing, holy, holy, holy are you, Jesus, conqueror of death and evil. All hail King Jesus as Jesus walked up and took his place at the right hand of the father. I was reminded about how much I love Jesus, how grateful I am for Jesus in my life. And it made me think that song that the angels were singing has been sung for 2,000 years as they worship Jesus. It's still being sung now. And on a Sunday morning when we worship together, we're joining in with that song in heaven, worshiping, singing, holy, holy, holy are you, Jesus And that's the song that we sing over London, inviting them to know a person who loves them. Not pretending for a minute that we can fix their problems or help them to be perfectly loved, but we can introduce them to the person who is love. You know, the most loving thing that anyone's ever done in my life is invite me to Alpha. Because I met Jesus, who loved me perfectly who knows me intimately. And in this person, everything that we need can be found. The broken pieces of our lives can be put back together. We can know hope and safety and we can trust Jesus with everything. And as I had that picture and experienced that moment again with Jesus and was reminded, you know, over the last couple of weeks, I've noticed that I'm just ever so slightly more patient. I feel a little bit gentler I'm keeping fewer records of everyone's wrongs because as we encounter the love of Jesus we are changed and transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives we become like Jesus and out of the overflow of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives we're able to better love those around us you know this letter to London how we can be a church that loves London The only thing we have to offer is to be loved ourselves by Jesus and allow him to change us from the inside out so that we can invite this city to join in with that song, to worship the one who loves them. Amen.